0: ...can be dismissed for children's Bible time. All the children four years old up to fourth grade, God bless these kids. You know, that's a good thing. I hope that uh, when you see the kids coming and uh, maybe even coming from maybe the bus route or the van route or whatever, you'll be saying, praise God, we got kids. It's not a good sign when there are no kids in the church, not a good sign at all. And uh, sometimes... Sometimes kids can be a little wild. And, uh, you know, sometimes they leave a mess. Let's say most of the time they leave a mess. And uh, sometimes uh, they can be a little bit uh, out of control. But ours is not to sit back and point the finger. Ours is to come alongside and say, hey, will you come sit with me? Some of these kids don't even know how to find uh, the page number on the hymn book. That's our job to teach them. And sometimes they don't know where to look in the Bible. That's our job to teach them. And I want to challenge each of you to take adopt some of these kids that come in. Maybe they don't have some of the opportunities that some others may have had and maybe some that we have had and say, you know what, I'm going to take these under my wing and reach out to them and show them the love of Jesus and help them. I'll tell you, there's a great opportunity that's had when we'll do that, when we honor the Lord in that way. Let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, help me as I preach tonight to preach boldly and powerfully and clearly. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's not saved, that tonight they'll understand the gospel and be born again. Help, Lord Jesus, help us. Help me as I preach to preach clearly and with conviction and with Holy Ghost unction and anointing. And Lord, help these, my vision, to preach with Holy Ghost, to listen with Holy Ghost power and to hear the Word of God as it is in truth, the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that when we leave, we'll have met your purpose have yielded to your word, that our hearts will be changed as a result of our time in the scripture. And we'll thank you, Lord, and we'll praise you for what you accomplish and the way that you work, because we ask all of this in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. In your opinion, what do you think is the most popular verse in all the Bible? In your opinion. What do you think is the most popular verse? Somebody other than the pastor, because he knows all the answers. So if you, in your opinion, what do you think is the most popular verse in all the Bible? Yes, sir. John 3.16, John 3.16. How many of you would agree John 3.16 is the most popular verse in all the Bible? They tell us that when Tim Tebow a few years ago was playing football and he put John 3.16 under his eyes for the shadow to keep the sun glare away, that it was Googled a multi millions of times on. on, That's interesting. That's a great blessing. I think that's thrilling to me. And John 3.16 is, is sometimes painted on a bridge. Sometimes it's, it's postered with all the words in it on a, on a billboard. I would, I would agree that John 3.16 is the most popular verse in the Bible. It's memorized in vacation Bible schools. It's preached from pulpits around the world. And, uh, without a doubt, without a doubt, the most popular verse in all the Bible is John 3.16. In your opinion, what is the second most popular verse or verses in the Bible? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Anybody else? Judge, judge not, judge not that you be not judged. And usually it's just judge not. Uh, that's definitely the case. What else, uh, what else do you think would be the most pop, second most popular verse in all the Bible? Do you have one? Yes? <inaudible> Philippians 4.13, my God, uh, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Anybody else to say this? I think this is the second most popular verse in all the Bible. Yes, sir. Jesus wept. That's definitely popular for kids wanting to memorize verses and get credit for it. That's good. Anybody else? This is my sec- my opinion. Mm, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Anybody else have a, a guess or a venture or an opinion? This really floats around in the matter of opinion. Yes. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who else? Somebody said something? John 3-3. John 3-3, Jesus said you must be born again. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yes? Ah, and all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Wonderful. Well, these are all very good, very good. Uh, If you were to ask me the question, what do you think, Brother Smith, is the second most popular verse, or verses in all the Bible, I would say Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, I don't know if it's the case now, but it sure seemed like it when I was growing up in high school and in junior high and high school and even college, that every other week somebody would come in and preach in chapel on Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I want you to turn there with me, turn there with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. And I want us to look at these verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's see what the Bible says. And now this is, again, we're delving into the matter of opinion. And so since I'm preaching, I'm going to give you my opinion tonight that this is the second most popular passage in all the word of God. It was memorized. It would be on some outside of some youth handbook that we would be given as we went to camp. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Look at what the Bible says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be a transform by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now watch this. He says, I beseech you. I plead with you. I beg of you. Give your body to God. That's the essence of the verse. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy. That means pure, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service And don't be like the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's through the Scripture, through the yielding to the Spirit, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You can't know the will of God until you present your body a living sacrifice, until you choose not to be conformed to this world, and until you allow the Word of God to transform your mind. And when you do, present your body to God a living sacrifice, you choose not to be conformed to this world and you choose to be transformed in your mind by the word of God and yielding to the spirit of God. Guess what's ha- Guess what's going to happen? You're going to know God's will and you're going to know that it's good and acceptable and perfect. I'm telling you, when I was growing up, I grew up in a Christian home. I thank God for that. Mom and dad didn't send me to church. They took me to church. I'm very grateful. Uh, we, I don't remember a time when we were not in church. And I'm extremely grateful for that. And by the way, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to place church as a priority. Uh, and, by, and since you brought up the subject, uh, this matter of soccer or dance or, or taekwondo or karate, that, 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 that shouldn't bump church out of the way. That should be bumped out of the way by church. And, and, and this is a wonderful thing about Bible Baptist Church. There are three services a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You, you say, Richard, why do you have Sunday night church for all the churches in town that don't? That's true. If you know somebody that goes to a church, a big box church, has lots of people and a big rock concert on Sunday morning, and they don't have anything Sunday night, tell them, at Bible Baptist Church, we have a service just for you, tailor-made, just fit, just for you. And, and you said, why do we have Wednesday night? Because Wednesday night is prayer meeting. And you know Lee Robertson, the pastor of Highland Park Baptist Church, that pastored there for several years, several decades, he would advertise his church as the world's largest prayer meeting. He wouldn't focus on Sunday school. He wouldn't focus on Sunday morning service. He'd aim for the Wednesday night service because his conviction was this. If we'll have a good prayer meeting, we'll have good rest of the services. Wednesday night shouldn't be a handful of people showing up. Ah, We might make it. Yes, prayer meeting. I mean, what good can come from that? Can you imagine our thinking? Can you imagine how mixed up and convoluted and confused we must be if we don't have enough backbone and enough commitment to drag ourselves to church on Wednesday night? Well, you're here, so I'm preaching to the choir. God bless all y'all who are here on a Wednesday night. But every Wednesday night, not just when some sideshow midget evangelist comes in from North Carolina. You know, I mean, we we ought to be here every Wednesday night and say, preacher, let's pray. And I mean, let's turn up the heat on the prayer meeting and make the devil flee. The devil's not afraid. The devil's not afraid of Christianity that only shows up Sunday morning. The devil's not afraid of Christianity that only shows up every once in a while, once a month when they have potluck. The devil's not afraid of that kind of Christianity. And I don't know about you, but I would like the devil, when he sees Dwight Smith, just to tremble a little bit. I, I, I'd like him to tremble, not because of me, but because of a fervent prayer life, and a holy walk with God, and a knowledge of the Scripture, and one victory after another. I'd like him to see, see me as a threat. Apparently the devil doesn't view much of us, very many of us as a threat. preacher said to me a while ago, He said, well, apparently most of us aren't much of a threat. Most of us preachers, because none of us are in jail. Well, I'll tell you, that convicted me, got all over me. And maybe we aren't much of a threat. I'll tell you, we'll never be a threat to the devil if we don't pray. If we don't pray. And so this matter of giving your body to God, this matter of choosing not to be conformed to this world, this matter of being transformed by the will of God, all produces... A knowledge of the wonderful will of God. So every time I turn around growing up in junior high, in high school, went into Bible college, uh, every time I turn around, some preacher be preaching on it. And I don't know if there's as much preaching on the will of God today as there should be, but I want to preach on it tonight. And I want to preach to you on the second most popular verse in all the Bible, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it tells us this again. If you will present your body to God, a living sacrifice, choose not to be conformed to this world. Ask God to transform you by the renewing of your mind that is yielding to his spirit and and obeying his word. You'll understand and know and obey his will. If you don't, you'll never understand and know and obey and appreciate His will. But if you do, oh, how wonderful His will will become to you. And His will ought to be your number one passion to discover and to follow. It ought to be my number one passion as a born-again believer, blood-bought child of God. My number one passion ought to be to know and to discover and to do the will of God. So let's just dissect this passage, can we? Verse number one, I want you to notice the truth. Notice the truth, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He's saying, here's the truth. The truth that every Christian needs to embrace is to present their body a living sacrifice. Now watch this. This is not salvation. I get bothered, Pastor Yoder, when I hear some preachers present salvation as if it were surrender. Salvation doesn't come through surrender. Surrender passages in the Bible are not salvation passages. And salvation passages are not surrender. A preacher comes and says, hey, surrender your all to God. That's not salvation. Salvation comes when I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When I understand I'm a sinner, headed to hell, and I don't deserve any of God's mercy. And I realize Jesus came for that very purpose, to die, shed his blood, be buried, and rise again. And only through my faith in that, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and him, the one who died, was buried, and rose again, only that can save me. Not anything else. Not giving your all to God. Not committing your life to Christ. Not surrendering your all to God. No, 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 no. That's not what saves. What saves you from hell and secures your home in heaven, washes your sin away, gives you abundant life and eternal life, is when you believe the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and the person who died was buried and rose again. Hear the scripture, Romans ten nine: That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Listen to the scripture, John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The moment you understand I'm a sinner, I'm headed to hell for my sin, I'm separated from God now and will be for all of eternity unless I... Settle this matter. I must come to Jesus and accept His gift of eternal life by faith. Believe that He died, was buried, and rose again instantly. That's when I'm saved. Not before, not until. Now, have you done that? If you haven't done that, this message is not primarily designed for you. If you haven't done that, your need is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sooner the better. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't say, well, I'll maybe do that sometime. And don't confuse it with this matter of surrender. Because this matter of surrender is not for the unbeliever. It is for the believer. Every unbeliever needs to believe on Jesus Christ. Every believer needs to give their all to God. And you know what I'm convinced of? There are dozens and hundreds and thousands of believers who haven't taken that step. I'm talking about giving your body to God. Notice again what he says. Romans 12 and verse 1. I beseech you. That is the idea of begging, pleading, imploring. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So he's speaking to believers by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, you know what? So much of our life we think is our own. We think it's our house, our car, our job, our life, our journey, our path. And we're so self-centered, so self-centered. You know what the Bible says? You belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. The Bible says this. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You know what he says in Romans? He says, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we... Are the Lord's. We don't belong to ourselves. And you mark this down selfish Christianity only lasts a generation before it goes into apostasy. You know what I believe we're living in right now? A tidal wave of selfish Christianity. Selfish, self-absorbed, filled with ourselves, wanting our life and our world and our selfies and our beautiful technology and our brilliance. And God, let me say, I said it last night. I'm going to say it again. God doesn't need Dwight Smith. Dwight Smith needs God. And God doesn't need you. God, God doesn't need you. You need God. And so the sooner we get over our selfish Christianity the better off we'll be. Dwight Eisenhower was asked on the day before D-Day when they went into the <clears throat> Normandy beaches. He said, "What is it that they said, what is it that you expect from every one of your superior every one of your uh, your commanding officers and every one of your soldiers and and sailors and and, and navy and sa- sailors and marines? What is it that you expect?" He said one word. Selflessness. Selflessness wins battles. Selfishness brings defeat. And so he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It won't be hard for you to accept that truth when you realize you're not your own. You know what else will make it easy for you to accept that truth? Look at the context of 1 Corinthians 12. By the way, it doesn't begin at 1 Corinthians 12one I'm sorry, Romans 12:1. Look at Romans, 12, Romans 11, <clears throat> verse number 29. It says, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in time past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Speaking to the Gentiles, who have obtained mercy through the unbelief of the Jews. Even so, have these also now not believed that through your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. So he's speaking about the Jews receiving mercy through the Gentiles. Verse number twenty or 32. He says, for God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that's Jew and Gentile, that he might have mercy upon all. Are you kind of getting what I'm getting? Mercy in verse number 30. Mercy in verse number 31. And again in verse 31. Mercy in verse 32. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You know what he says three times in the verses that we just read? He says something about God's mercy. Now, mercy is me not getting what I deserve. Parents, have you ever felt like your children just needed a whooping? That's it. They've crossed the line. No more. Been about to drive me crazy all week long. They're about to get a whooping. By the way, this old world needs a few more whoopings. It would help your home. You know, a whooping isn't the end of the world and it isn't the final condemnation. You know what it is? It's just a tune-up. That's all it is. And if you'll apply it, You know, it'll help things run better. It's amazing how all of a sudden the whole rest of my family, all the kids seem to sit up and take note when one of the kids is disciplined. Something happens. I mean, it just ripples. It's the trickle-down effect. I mean, it really helps. And folks, uh, so when you give them a whooping, uh, that just kind of settles things. But every once in a while, my kids know they deserve a spanking. I'll send them to the room where we usually apply the spanking. And they're, they're, they're just about to melt down. I mean, have a breakdown. And I'll come in instead of giving them a spanking. You know what I'll do? I'll give them mercy. You and I have been the recipients of God's mercy. Not all of us growing up received spankings, but not a one of us received as much as we needed. Right? That's mercy. Look, look this way. The fact that you are breathing right now is God's mercy. Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful, especially on a day like today. But oftentimes people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And it might be better for us to ask the question, why do good things happen to bad people? Everybody wants to ask when a tragedy happens, why do bad calamities happen? But nobody wants to ask after they breathe five minutes. I don't know why I'm still alive. I was drunk all Saturday night and God gave me life. I didn't get in a drunk driving accident on the way home. I don't know why I'm still alive. You know why? We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We're not bad. We're good. And the fact is the. But we're alive is an evidence of God's mercy. The fact that you were born in this country to hear the gospel is an evidence of God's mercy. The fact that you have good health or reasonable health is an evidence of God's mercy. The fact that you've got a Bible in your lap or close enough to reach out and grab it is an evidence of God's mercy. The fact that we have a gospel preaching church in Brookings, South Dakota is an evidence of God's mercy. And if we really stepped back and saw it as it is, we'd fall down on our face and say, oh God, thank you. Have you ever studied God's mercy in the Bible? Have you ever stopped to think about God's mercy in your life? Have you stopped recently to thank God for his mercy? Look, you'll have no problem giving your all to God when you move from selfishness to selflessness, and you'll have no problem presenting your body a living sacrifice when you stop for a moment and consider God's mercy. Notice what he says in verse number 1 of chapter 12. He said, I present your I, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. All right. What is this? This is referring to something that was done in the Old Testament when the priest or or the person bringing the sacrifice would bring not one, but two animals to the priest. Uh, sometimes it would be a he goat. Sometimes it would be a turtle dove. Sometimes it would be a, a, a calf, depending on the, the, the economic status of the one bringing the offering. And they would bring that offering to the priest, and the priest would take one animal and kill it. And the blood would flow into a basin. Then they would take the turtle dove, if it was two turtle doves, and dip it down in the blood of the first first sacrifice, the one that died, take it out, and let it go free. They would take the he-goat and take some of blood and put it on the forehead of that he-goat, lead it out into the wilderness, and let it go free. And that's what he's saying when he's talking about a living sacrifice. You and I have been dipped and covered and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he has set us free, free from the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, free from the law, oh, happy condition, free from the condemnation that it brings. And now covered and washed in his blood, we are to be giving ourselves a living sacrifice. In other words, God spared us so that we would give our all to him. Don't ask, has there been a time in your life when you've said, Lord, in your Christian life, when you've said, Lord, here I am, lock, stock and barrel, I give my all to you. This is not salvation. Are you ready? This is not a surrender to full time service, the ministry, if you will. This is a surrender that every Christian should make. Every mother, every father, every husband, every wife, every older adult, every middle-aged, every teenager, every single, every married, every young person that knows Christ. If you have not, tonight, you should give your all to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. I'm presenting myself a living sacrifice. You've washed me and covered me in your precious blood and set me free. I want to live for you with all that I am and all that I have. This would be like in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, when a servant was given the opportunity to be released. In the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, servants would be brought and they would be released. They would be set free, depending on how long they'd served and whatnot. And if they wanted to stay serving in the master's house, they would... They would declare it. I want to serve. My master's been good to me. He loves me and cares for me and meets my needs. I want to serve him. So they would take their, their earlobe and they would take it next to the door. And with an awl, they would drive a hole and pierce the earlobe. Whenever you saw a servant with a pierced earlobe, you'd know this. That servant has chosen to give his all to the master. That's a living sacrifice. That's a living sacrifice. Now, why would we say no to the Lord in this crucial matter? Why would we hoard our resources and harbor our stuff and hoard our life and say, no Lord, no 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 it's mine, not yours. Why would we do that? How many of you have ever seen the program hoarders? Hmm? It's amazing, isn't it? You walk they, they take you through a TV journey through their house. Sometimes they can't even open the door. If they open the door, they can't even get in. I mean it's just stuff, just stacked on piles of it sometimes it's garbage bags full and, and it's almost repulsive you say how could these people live like that they've got all kinds of stuff everywhere what, what? and you know there is an entire industry of people that are selling their business and and selling you on the idea that they'll come and clean up your home if you're a hoarder he's a preacher it's a mess watch this it looks just like a Christian who won't present his body a living sacrifice All kinds of mess, all kinds of stuff. That's not the way God intended you to live. All that mess, all that trouble, all that unsettledness. That's not the way God intended for you to live. He intended for you to give your all to God. Lord, here I am. I'll tell you, there are two people that are more miserable than anybody else on the planet. One is someone who's not saved and knows they should be saved and knows how to be saved and they won't get saved. And two is a Christian who will not give his all to God. Miserable! Why? Because it's not the way God intended them to be. Number one is the truth. Present your body as a living sacrifice. And look at how he says for us to do it. Holy, that means pure. That means don't come to God with your dirt and your filth. You come asking him to forgive you and cleanse you. And then you present your body. Holy, acceptable unto God. By the way, that should be our heart's cry. Lord, I want to be acceptable to you. He said, Preacher, wait a second. I thought we were accepted in the beloved. According to Ephesians chapter one, we are accepted in the beloved. That's our position. But practically day after day, we should be asking the question, Lord, is this acceptable to you? Lord, are my choices acceptable to you? Lord, is my life acceptable to you? And if it's not, we should confess it, forsake it and replace it with what he is. Watch what he says in verse number one. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. When, in other words, God asking you to give your all to Him is not an unreasonable demand. It's just reasonable that God who has sent His Son to die for us, God who has given His only begotten, God who has come down amongst us in the flesh, God who went to the cross and shed His blood and died a cruel criminal's death for, for nothing. He didn't do it for anything of His own sin because He is absolutely sinless. He died in your place and in mine because of our sin. Our sin was placed upon Him. And then He was buried, and three days later, He rose again, conquered sin, conquered death, conquered the grave, and wants to rule and reign not only in heaven, but but in your heart, and he's saved you from your sin, it's just reasonable. It's just absolutely the next step. It is completely understandable that he would expect you to give your all to God. And I'll tell you, if you're a Christian, you're saved, praise God for that. You're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. Praise God. You'll never have to worry about perishing. But watch. This piece of the puzzle needs to be put in place. God, here it is. I give you my all. Number one is the truth. Number two... Is the trouble. The trouble. Consider the trouble. Look at verse number two. And be not conformed to this world. Now, preacher, you said that there's a lot of selfish Christians. How do you know that? Because of the worldliness? And by the way, worldliness affects our thinking. We'll note it in a moment. Worldliness affects our actions. Worldliness will affect our choices, it will impact our entertainment. Worldliness will impact our music choices. It will impact what we watch on television. It will impact how we think and treat others, how we, uh, pers- how we perceive money. It will impact every facet, every warp and woof of our life. Worldliness, worldly thinking. John Wesley said, the world is anything that cools my affection for Jesus Christ. It's true. It is. It will cool your affection faster than you know. The Bible tells us in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Hey, mark it down. The world is gunning for your love, it wants your affection. That's why the Bible says in Colossians 3, Set your affection on things above and not on things on this earth. For you're dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 33 he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's why he said in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, he said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. He said, preacher, how can you say it's a selfish generation? Well, let me ask you this. How many missionaries are being sent out of our churches? How many new churches are being started? How many do you know that just 60 years ago, that generation, I'm talking about pre-, mid-, and post-World War II, that generation, there were 40,000, mark it down, 40,000 people who surrendered to the mission field at the average age of 10. Why? Why? Because you had a whole bunch of Christians that were giving their all to God. This is the way a Christian home and a Bible preaching church ought to look like. It ought to be filled with not perfect people, but people who are giving their all to God. And when you give your all to God, guess what happens? There's a world that's reached with the gospel. You have a mom and a dad, a husband and a wife that want to love each other and respect each other the way God expects. And you want to. You have a mom and a dad that want to rear their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you have family altar and time when the family prays together and talks about the word of God together. And the mom and dad want to tell the children, young people, if God wants you to serve on a foreign mission field and we only see you once every three or four years, that's fine. You do what God wants you to do. And they'd raise their children and they'd send them off to Bible college and they'd get them headed towards the mission field and they'd go and they'd reach the world and they did. And now we have a whole lot of parents that say, wait, look, you better not go to some college that doesn't even have an accredited degree. Hey, Hey, whoa, 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 time out. You better not. You better not. You better not go off into the ministry. You're going to be poor as a church mouse the rest of your life. And whatever you do, don't take my grandbabies over to the other side of the ocean. I mean, when am I going to see them? And how's that all going to work out? Look, there's a house right down here. I'll buy you a house. And I'll keep you close. And I'll even put you on the payroll. And, uh, and who knows? And You know what we do? We gather everybody close. And we don't want to let anybody go. Selfish. While wow, there are people in the 1040 window on that map. Maybe that map is just there for decoration. Maybe that map is just there because the pastor couldn't think anything else to put. He didn't want to put a big picture of himself on the back wall. You know, that map right there has a 1040 window on it, and it represents billions of people who are headed to a Christless eternity. Let me tell you something. This cheap, sorry, two-bit, run-of-the-mill, hip, cool, contemporary Christianity never turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And now it chaps my hide that there are Christians and preachers alike that want to just be like the world. We'll be like the world in our our singing. And we'll be like the world in our entertainment. You know, right now, there's a preacher in California who was raised by preachers and should know better. And he says the best way to get and keep visitors is to hand out movie tickets to your visitors in church. He ought to be ashamed of himself. And the best thing he could do is Put everybody out of their misery and resign from his post. For shame. For shame that a preacher would ever say such a thing. Run hog wild to Hollywood. That's the way we'll do it. We'll just promote Hollywood in the church. What worldliness. Well, I can't ever expect a preacher like that to tell me the truth about anything. If he's telling me to run to the world that Jesus is telling me to run out of, hey, I can understand. Are you listening? I can understand some kid that maybe has gone and gotten on the van route or maybe that has reached in some poor or whatever neighborhood or in some rich neighborhood whose mom and dad were druggies and moms and dads were harlots or drunkards. I can see maybe, I can see maybe, uh, and understand why that kid would repeat the, the wicked cycle. But you know what I'm seeing pastures I travel? Kids like that who are scraping and clawing and working their way into church any which way they can, trying to get out of the mess and rot gut of the world while kids in the church who have been raised by mom and dad who have taught them the truth of the word of God are crawling over those kids out of church trying to get into the rot gut of the world and making excuses. And if they want to, they'll find a preacher to justify it all. Worldliness. A preacher, you sound worked up. Rich, don't you need to calm down. Your blood pressure is a little too high. Don't you know that your veins are popping up on the side of your neck? Listen to me. You know why I am? Because every day that you live and every day that I live, the world is preaching to you. And they're telling you, this is how you ought to dress. Charles Spurgeon said the world gets their fashion from Paris and Paris gets their fashion straight from hell. Charles Spurgeon said that in the Victorian age. I wonder what he'd say right now. I, I've, Pastor, excuse me for meddling, but I've just, just kind of given up, wondering how, how modesty isn't talked about, isn't mentioned. It used to be a lady looked like a lady, number one, and cared about it. You take one trip to Walmart and you see nobody cares about anything. They, they're in their pajamas. Look all the other way, boys. We were walking into Walmart the other day. Now, I wasn't like this when I didn't have a girl. But now I got a little baby girl. This 20-year-old, 18-year-old, 19-year-old came walking by with his pants halfway down his backside. I said, do what? I said, boy, pull your pants up. You say you should have given him a gospel track. You're right, I should have. I'm not quite as spiritual as you. I said, pull your pants up. He said, what, huh? I said, pull those pants up. My little girl doesn't need to see your backside. Shame. But you know, I'll tell you this. It's doubly a shame when a Christian does it. It's doubly a shame when a lady walks out looking like her clothes have been painted on. Somebody say amen right here. It's getting kind of quiet. Can I get a witness in this South Dakota, Eastern European? We're not sure if we want to say amen or not. Preacher done gone and take the sign. Amen. That's not, nobody else. Say it. I'll say it. How about it? You know what that is? It's all worldly. It's worldly when you can't tell one snap's worth of difference between what's going on in the church worship service and the nightclub. That's worldly. And God says it's wicked. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I saw a tweet today from a prominent, independent Baptist preacher said, the most selfish thing one generation can do is expect the next generation to sing the exact same music they sang. Has he lost his ever-loving mind? Something is bad wrong when the preachers are grabbing us by the hand and leading us right into the world that Jesus saved us from. Something bad wrong. Hey, you know what? I don't want my son to grow up and hip-hop and swivel his hiney and dance around and dance around to the blue light special of the world. No, sir. I want him to be singing the songs of Zion or new songs that sound just like the songs of Zion. Fanny Crosby, one of the greatest hymn writers that ever graced the church, said the music of the world and the music of the church should be distinctly different. Oh, God, help us. You know, one of the things I enjoyed when I was growing up, I grew up in Indiana until I was eight or nine, then moved to Minnesota. One of the things I enjoyed in Indiana was we'd go to the Chicago Zoo. And I loved it. One of the things I loved, Corey, about the Chicago Zoo is they had a machine you could put money in, and it would drop a ball of wax—a black ball of wax, uh, a brown ball of wax, or a gold ball of wax, or a gray ball of wax. It depended on whether it was an elephant, or a ape, or a giraffe, or a or a, a monkey. And uh, if I wanted a monkey, I'd put my money in, drop a ball of wax down, and then it would have a form that would clamp around that ball of wax. Is there anybody else that remembers these machines? Anybody else? Well, they had them in the Chicago Zoo. I guess they haven't made it this far west. But anyway, uh, it would clamp around that ball of wax, and it would form it into a mold. And then after a while, it would have a little trimmer that would come around and cut the excess off, and then it would cool it, and it would open, and that ape or giraffe or lion or elephant would fall down in. you wait for a moment, reach down and grab it, and you'd have have your toy. Look at the word verse number two. Be not conformed to this world. You know what that word conformed means? Pressed into a mold. You want to know something? If you let it, the world will make a monkey out of you. Every single time you know the world looks at us <clears throat> and they say those christians are so strange and we are i mean look i've driven by every single night over here at bible baptist church and the parking lot's full where they have church every night yeah that's strange and those christians they don't smoke and they don't chew and they don't go with girls that do and they read their bibles and they pray that's so strange no you know what's strange The way lady gaga looks that's strange a few years ago i was watching as miley cyrus was being pegged as the next superstar coming up beautiful little girl 13 14 i thought this girl beautiful voice beautiful talent beautiful little girl they're going to make a freak out of her and that's exactly what they've done You know what the world says of us? Oh, you Christians, bunch of cookie cutter Christians got to talk the same way and act the same way and walk the same way. Are you kidding me? You will not find uniqueness or a more varied body in all the world than a local New Testament church and people that have been blood bought. You want to find cookie cutter? You look at the world. They say this is the way to dress. This is the way to act. This is which bathroom to go into. Oh, well, actually, we don't know. Oh, uh, mm, this is what I think. Whew. I want to say, parents, you better grab your kids and hold them close. You better feed them the word of God now. Because this is a wicked, perverse world that wants to form them into a mold. How do you avoid that? By your choice. I will not be like the world. I Hate the world system and everything that it represents. I will not let it influence me. Watch. That's the trouble. But wait, there's a, trans, there's a treasure. Look at what it says in verse number two. And be not conformed to this world. That's the trouble. But look at the transformation, verse three. Verse two. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, watch. First of all, there's the truth. I need to present my body a living sacrifice to the Lord. Wholly acceptable unto God. It's the reasonable thing to do. Then I need to make a choice. I will not let the world influence me because I hate it and everything that it represents. Then there's the transformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now watch, up to this point, or at least in that second point, I was a little negative. Right? Right? You can nod, it's okay. All right, these preachers getting a little hot under the collar, and I am too. Watch, this is positive. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You say, how does that happen? Through me reading the Bible and allowing the author of it, the Holy Spirit, to change my thinking. They tell us about a drug addict that you can take a picture of his brain, and there are certain patterns and paths in an addict's brain that have been formed. By the way, they tell us that there's not much difference between the picture of a drug addict's brain and a porn addict's brain. Dopamine, a little substance released in the front lobe of our brain, begins to create a pleasure sensation. And then it's an overdone and out of God's boundaries problem. And then it's an addiction. How does that change when a person gets saved? Well, the Lord changes not the outside in. He changes the inside out. Remember, we've talked about that this week. And watch now. That person can completely transform the patterns, the paths, the ways that have been built in their brain. Hey, just because a person gets saved doesn't mean they'll go from lazy to diligent. In fact, Bob Jones Sr. said that a man's basic character does not change when he gets saved. I used to hear that and say, I don't know if I agree with it. The longer I live and more I minister, the more I see it so. Hey, a person's destiny changes when he gets saved. A person's position in Christ changes when he gets saved. A person's opportunity changes when he gets saved. A person's sin burden changes because it goes straight off and he gets an abundant life. But a person's basic character doesn't. Well, how does that basic character change? By the renewing of your mind, it's a transformation. When I was in uh, Lubbock, Texas a few years ago, I was preaching, and uh, I wanted to go to Walmart. I had to get out of the hotel, and I wanted to go to Walmart, which was over there. So logically thinking, if I was going to go to Walmart, which was over there, I would take a right, and then a right, and then a left, and I'd be at Walmart. But they wouldn't let me do it. They made me turn left on a one-way out of the hotel, and then left again, and then right, and then right again, and then right, and then right, and then left. Now, isn't that ridiculous? Ah, those people in Texas, I'll tell you. Uh, but then I noticed something behind the hotel. I said, I, I, this is crazy. i just like to take a right and a right and a right and a left, and I'm there. And I noticed behind the hotel, people had driven up on the curb, and they'd made a path of their own and driven into another parking lot over here, and they just totally bypassed the way. You know what they did? They made a new path. Now, it wasn't the best path. and wasn't the easiest path. But watch this. There are some bad paths that have been made in your heart and mind, and God wants to blow them up. They're no good. Laziness, good or bad? Good or bad? Bad. That's not going to help you, your family, your society. How about grumpiness? Is that going to help your marriage? Good or bad? Grumpiness, good or bad? Bad. That's not going to help you. How about selfishness? Good or bad? Good or bad? Bad, bad wait. Somebody's been listening during my preaching. Praise the Lord. Uh, how about how about uh, greed? Good or bad? Good or bad? Bad, bad. Uh, how about how about um, if I'm if I'm perpetually late? Oh, preacher's going to preach on that. Is that good or bad? Good or bad? Bad. It's bad. So all these things are are, are not good. How can I be changed to them? How about pornography? Good or bad? Bad. How about drug dealing? Good or bad? How about drinking, good or bad? All right, bad. So I've got all these bad patterns in my life as a a new believer. What do I do? Give your body to God. Make an absolute choice. I will not be influenced by the world. And then say, Lord, help me through your word to obey. That means I'm going to have to read it. Become familiar with it. Memorize it. Study it. Show up when it's preached. And when it's preached, respond to it. And then I'm going to have to yield daily to the Holy Spirit. You know, let me say this. Pat, neither pastor nor I sit and worry about you. Because we believe you have a brain. And we believe you've got a Bible. And if you will, with your brain, study your Bible, and if you're saved, you've got the Holy Spirit. He's begun a good work in you and he'll perform it. And if you let the word of God transform your life, it'll transform your marriage. It's you. If you let the Word of God transform your thought process, it'll transform your perspective. Depression, good or bad, good or bad, bad. Some people, that's the way they were raised to be depressed. Mom and dad never showed them an optimistic viewpoint. Mom and dad never showed them how to rise up out of the pits when they were in the pits. Anger, a- a- uncontrolled anger, good or bad, bad. You know, some people, that's all they saw with mom and dad. Ah! Is the way to, to respond to the problem. Just throw a hand grenade. And if that wouldn't work, do a slow burn. Just slow burn. Just let it simmer and simmer like, like kerosene on a rag in the garage until finally there was just spontaneous combustion. That's all they saw. So that's all they know. When they get saved, that doesn't change unless they let the Word of God and the author, the Spirit of God, transform their mind. You know what this word transform is? The word conformed means pressed into a mold. The word transformed is this little, tiny caterpillar. I mean, it's only this big, easy to squish, but there it is on the twig moving its way along and nibbling and eating everything green around it. Until one day, moving so slow, there's nothing about a caterpillar that causes an aeronautical engineer to say, that will fly. Right? Right? Can I get a witness right now? Brother Caleb, he's an engineer. There's nothing about a man who's an engineer looks at that and says, potential, folks. This thing has potential. Nothing. You know, sometimes people get saved. They're new believers in the church. And they mess and they sit and they, they, they holler and carry on or they don't show up when they should or whatever. And, and, and old believers say, mm-mm, ain't no way. But guess what? All of us back in our family history, somebody looked at us and said, mm-mm, ain't no way. My dad said, before I got saved, Dwight, I'd, I'd use language that would make my unsaved friends blush. When God saved me, he took that away. Now guess what? God still has some work to do on my dad, and he's 85. Just like God still has some work to do on Dwight Smith. I'm 45. He's working on me. There should never be a time in a Christian's life when I choose not to be transformed. Every day I need to be in the Word. And so here's this little slow-moving caterpillar working away, and all of a sudden, guess what? (laughs) It swings down on the branch and starts to spin a chrysalis, and it's wrapped up. Now, there's nothing that looks at a chrysalis and says, Potential. That thing is going to soar to highest heights. But one day out of that chrysalis comes the caterpillar, and do you know what it does? It stretches an antenna out and a wet wing and a leg, and another leg, and another wet wing, and another antenna, and it holds on to the chrysalis and starts to spread its wings. When you see that wet-winged butterfly, you say, Wow! What? Who are you and what would you do with the caterpillar? But nobody looks at that wet-winged butterfly that's all looking like an alien just dropped off of Mars and says, Potential. Well, all of a sudden that... That butterfly starts to catch the breeze and it dries its wings. You say, Wow, look at those wings and the color and the beauty. And all of a sudden, it takes flight. Now, folks, I don't know where you're at in the whole process. But you know, being transformed doesn't happen like that. It takes time as you read God's word to say, wait a second. I've been looking at my whole life as a hopeless cause, but God says I can have hope. How can I have hope? I mean, it's 9-11. It's pure struggle, trouble everywhere. People are remembering the most awful day in America's history, and modern history. There's no hope for me. As you read the Word of God and let it infuse you with hope and you yield to the Holy Spirit, you say, you know what? I don't have to live in a constant state of stress and depression. I can rise and fly, and God can give me hope. You see how that happens? You see, all of a sudden your anger doesn't just vanish. Sometimes it may vanish slowly. Sometimes it may take time, but it will not vanish as long as you say, I will not let the word of God get in me and I will not let the author transform me. But it will vanish when, watch it, you give your body to God. You choose not to be influenced by the world. You say, preacher, we need to hate the world system. That's exactly what I'm saying. You should despise the world system and all of its wicked ideas. And then you say, Lord, I've got to have your word to help me. Would you let the Holy Spirit transform me? And look at what happens at the end of verse 2. Oh, this is thrilling. It says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that... Ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, he didn't say God's will would be easy. He didn't say God's will would always be the most lovely. But he said God's will is good, it's acceptable. And perfect. You ask any Christian, anywhere, anytime in church history that has said, God, I give you my body. God, I'm going to refuse the world and its wicked influences. God, I'm going to let your word transform my thinking as well as the author and everyone, no matter whether God has taken them through a veil of tears or a mountainous view, They will tell you God's will is good. God's will is acceptable. God's will is.